0: Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space in a completely random order. It's the police box in the junkyard podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts. Eric Goldbranson. Asad Khashgi. And Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. It's the entire universe. On Shuffle. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is Tim Trelaw, and I play the third Doctor for Big Finish Productions. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels!
1: Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast where we undertake the dreamy task of discussing in-story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. It's not that dreamy, but you know. (laughs) <laughs> my name is tony whit and today we have an equally dreamy three-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a who fan since 1979 that would be me i guess that makes me the dreamiest but we also have our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes so has not previously read any of these books until these podcasts and this time it's the dreamy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. <laughs>
0: hello, hello. I'm just thinking about the dream girls now. So thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I hope that's a good memory. No, it is. It is. Maybe even the dreamy one. <laughs> and finally, there's our semi Novice fan, one who has seen Little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones that we've done for this podcast. And this time it's the wise and witty and not-at-all nightmarish, Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. <sighs>
2: Hello. <laughs> I, I could be doing Tegan. I could be doing Nyssa. I could be doing any number of impressions.
1: Yes, that's true. That's true. I thought you were just so offended that you were shocked into silence.
2: No, no, no. I was trying to snore uh, piggishly. Did it work?
1: No, I didn't hear you.
2: Oh, you didn't hear the snore? No. Oh, wow. Okay. It must have been filtered out with white noise. Let me try it again.
1: Okay. That's better.
2: <laughs> Is it really?
1: No. <laughs> Not really, but still. Do you
2: want me to do that again?
1: No, no. We'll just leave all of this in because it's much more entertaining. (laughs) For whom? For everybody, but especially for me. If you (laughs) like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetpc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them. At least until I rearrange the uh, gift scheduling. Just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you store them all in the dark places of the inside. Though how you fit them all in there, I'd rather not ask. (laughs) Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air.
2: Man, what if PBS started giving out Doctor Who Target books?
1: That's how I got mine. Really? Yes, I told you that story, didn't I?
2: I must have been sleeping. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I don't think you were on that episode. Was she on
2: Horns of Nymon, Dalton? I don't think so. I'm not
1: sure. No, probably not. But yeah, that was my very first Target novelization, and it was gotten as a uh, PBS promotion. Nice. So yeah, that's why I say that. And as usual, I'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collector's Podlet. Podwax. <laughs> the Doctor Collectors podcast. That's definitely staying in. Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Middleton Welling, and Louise Dennis. Thank you all.
2: Thank you, everyone. Thank you, thank you.
1: We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7K M-A-S-P-R. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Peter Davison's first season as the Doctor as we discuss Terrence Stick's novelization of Kinda. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Kinda, adapted by Terrence Stick from the script by Christopher Bailey that aired from 2.182 to 2.982, published by Target Books in March 1984. As of this recording in March 2023, this title is currently out of print but is available as an abridged audiobook, 126 pages. You would never know it, from this novelization, but this is one of the most highly regarded stories from the Davison era, despite or maybe even because of various aspects of the production. The production order is still a little screwy, so Visitation, the story that follows this one, was actually made before it, making this Davison's third story before he would film Castrovalva. Needless to say, he has by now settled into the role very nicely, and I personally think this story shows off the best traits of the Fifth Doctor. The story itself is from new writer Christopher Bailey, who had done a few scripts for TV before this and has since become a lecturer in English at the University of Brighton. Bailey had an interest in Buddhism and the works of Carl Jung, and he mixed elements of these in with an otherwise more obvious retelling of the Garden of Eden myth,
2: No, you see, that's just a myth. Yeah, but she's my myth. No, no, myth, myth.
0: Yeah? What the heck?
1: Hence the names of the characters. Shannon Patrick Sullivan's website tells us that Mara means temptation, Dukkha means suffering, Pana is wisdom, Karuna is compassion, Annika is impermanence, and Anatta is soullessness. In fact, I think those last two names don't actually appear in the novelization. Even the name of the planet Loka includes the word Deva, which is another word for gods. So it's no wonder, then, that this story was the first to get an actual academic analysis. John Tulloch and Manuel Alvarado, both academics and media studies, wrote a book called Doctor Who, the Unfolding Text in 1983 that delved into the story very seriously, comparing it to Ursula K. Le Guin's novel The word for world is forest. Personally, the only thing I've seen in common between the two is that they both have an indigenous, nature-based culture clashing with a colonial group bent on destroying them. So, by that logic, Avatar is similar to Le Guin's book, too. And, to be blunt, Kinda is at times better than Avatar. One notorious way it is not better than Avatar is the special effects, as you would gather. Kinda would have been the perfect choice for a location story, but instead it was confined to the studio. And director Peter Grimwade was particularly annoyed at how much time had to be spent covering the studio floor with leaves, (laughs) since it cut into camera rehearsal time. There's also the sequence with the giant snake, which could have been better, and it has in fact been redone for the Blu-ray editions. Paul Cornell, Martin Day, and Keith Topping, in their discontinuity guide, though, point out that what better way for a trickster being like the Mara to appear than as an unconvincing giant rubber snake? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that is a point. What is convincing in the story is the performances. We have the legendary British actress Mary Morris as Panna, former Liverbird sitcom star Norris Hughes giving a very good performance as Dr. Todd. Simon Rouse doing a nuanced performance as Hindle, and Richard Todd doing an amazing job as Sanders, both in his gruff military mode and his relaxed, enlightened, childlike mode. Janet Fielding doesn't get to be the Mara for long in this one, but she's also amazing at it. I do need to say that I was supposed to do a biography of Janet Fielding for this episode, and it completely slipped my mind. But Janet Fielding is going to be around for a good long while, so I'll definitely get her next time. So don't worry about that. (laughs) Speaking of Richard Todd, though, in addition to being a well-known actor who was one of the first choices for James Bond back in the 1960s, he's also the first Oscar-nominated actor to appear in Doctor Who, having been nominated for Best Actor way back in 1949 for a film called The Hasty Heart. This is probably why our latest bit of Waterhouse trivia gets so much attention. Apparently, Matthew Waterhouse, being in a bit of a self-deprecating mood after making some mistake or other, joked with Todd that the thing to remember about television acting is not to look into the camera. Davison overheard this and apparently took him seriously, thinking that the stupid, barely legal actor was trying to teach an Oscar nominee how to act. I personally give Waterhouse the benefit of the doubt on this one. After all, he had given Davison grief about Davison's acting previously, and I could see Davison blowing the story out of proportion just to get back at him a bit. So, yeah.
0: I feel like we're going to get things like that for every story.
1: Yeah, but not for long. (laughs) (laughs) So... Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? And we haven't had you do one of these in a while.
2: All right. Nothing could disturb the serene peace of the planet Devaloka, or could it? An expeditionary force from Earth is dangerously out of control, and it's not only the peaceful race of the Kinda who are at risk. A gentle stroll in the lush jungle leads the Doctor and Adric to an unexpected confrontation and puts them at the mercy of a maniac. But it is Tegan, rolled to sleep by mysterious wind chimes, who comes closest to the real danger that threatens not only her sanity, but the existence of the whole planet.
1: Yes. So, Dalton, what was your first impression of this book?
0: Well, again, lovely photo cover. This one looks like the doctor is waiting on his chance to use the futuristic Zoltar machine. (laughs) 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 Um, So that's just, yeah, first instinct from the picture. The name Kenda, uh, we've joked about saying kinda. So Kinda doesn't really like evoke anything much for me. But then kind of reading the back of it, talking about this lush jungle, this kind of idyllic place. It felt, <laughs> again, like we're going to be doing another colonialism story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And we are. But this one kind of goes in a different direction. And then you had kind of told us last time that Nyssa was basically going to be MIA for most of this one. So it did not surprise me to not see anything about her on the back either.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of weird that Dix does not include in his novelization of For the Doomsday the very last scene where Nyssa passes out in the TARDIS. Yeah. Probably because it was a late edition. But the thing is, it was a late addition to the camera script, so I'm surprised he didn't do that. I guess he figured, why bother? I mean, who knows when the next book is going to be out? Even if I get a chance to write it, and sure enough, he did get a chance to write it. So yeah, yeah.
0: I was I was shocked to see that bit when I went back and watched toward Doomsday*. That last little bit where Nissa gets faint—it's like what? But. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because it's not in the book at all, and it really doesn't need to be, because it's nice and self-contained here. Mm-hmm. Allison, what was your first impression?
2: Well, I laughed when Dalton was talking about the lush green jungle planet, because I was looking at this cover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where the doctor looks fairly bored as he looks at, uh, I guess he thumbs through popular mechanics, but also he appears to be in some kind of, I don't know, root cellar, (laughs) not in a lush location. So if you'll recall, I said that I did not know this doctor's voice and mannerisms, and I wanted to read the novelizations to see if I got a sense of it. Well, since then, I have actually seen Valva and I was surprised at how coherent he seemed much of the time, considering <laughs> on the story, he's often like sort of on the edge of consciousness. Right. And uh, when I was reading this, I had to keep correcting myself to envision the correct doctor. Mm. I feel like we don't get a very strong sense of his persona at all in the novelization that we've read so far.
1: I'd agree. In fact, part of that reason may be that, well, it won't surprise you to know that Chris Bailey actually drafted the story with Tom Baker's doctor in mind.
2: I could see that. That makes sense. Because I kept mentally reverting to Tom Baker. Yeah, We've read many novelizations recently of, of Tom Baker. And it wasn't terrible or disgraceful. Or this doctor would never say that. I just don't get a strong sense yet of what this doctor would or wouldn't say. And he doesn't have a he has a somewhat generic doctor voice.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there are a few lines that you can tell Tom Baker would have had a field day with. He's opining that the inhabitants or the people who have the machine might be binocular, bipedal. And then when he's held at gunpoint, he's like, "See, yeah, I was right, binocular, mm-hmm. bipedal. Mm-hmm. And he's really happy about it. But Davison imprints those scenes with his own character very nicely the biggest difference would have been if this had gone out as a tom baker story the fourth doctor would have been more in the cast of a wise old sage who's bringing in his wisdom to the Kinda. and that just doesn't work with the davison doctor which is why the davison doctor here isn't the one who solves one of the two problems it's actually Dr. Todd who solves the Hindle problem, yeah, and very well, in fact. So it's a very pro-woman story in its own way. But the doctor ends up solving the problem at the end with the Mara.
2: I will say that there are two different lame jokes to be made about Kenda slash Kinda. Uh, there's a different one on the cover than on the title page, because you can read the front jacket as Dr. Who, Kinda of Terrence Dicks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But then when you get to the title page, it's Doctor Who. Kinda. <laughs> like, mm, store brand. Country. Yeah. Generic Doctor Who.
1: Which is weird.
2: My my complaint about Doctor Todd is that it's not abbreviated. So I had to kept checking to make sure I was uh, I understood which doctor was being referenced.
1: Oh yeah. As
2: opposed to DR doctor. Yeah,
1: I was having
0: an mm. issue with that as well.
1: Yeah, she is not referred to as Doctor on screen at all. So I I have a feeling this is Terrence Dix trying to give this character her professional credit.
2: Oh, I appreciate it. I just wish he had done it with an abbreviation.
1: Yeah, it would have been a little bit easier. And if he'd given her a first name, for instance, because he does give the two missing members of the expedition names. He also does something which I really appreciate, which is he doesn't forget them like the televised script does. The televised script brings them up in the first episode, and then we never hear about those disappeared expedition members again. And no one even gives any sort of, you know, like, well, maybe this happened to them. Nothing like that. Whereas later, you get that brief mention of perhaps they fell under the trap of the Mara, and the Mara ended up killing them somehow.
2: I think I missed even that. I thought that they just... Had an attitude of, eh, what can you do? They wanted to see if we would survive six seasons. <laughs> 50% ain't bad. I
1: guess so, but what else would have killed them? I almost said that this story doesn't have a body count. It's one of the few times in Doctor Who that you don't have people dying. That's true in the main story. Obviously, before the Doctor and crew get there, they've lost those two expedition members, but we're never told how.
0: Yeah, we don't have any kind of idea of what actually led to their demise. If Even if they are, they could just be out in the jungle somewhere enjoying their whatever. I don't know.
1: <laughs> they could. They could have been exposed to the Box of Jana as well, and they could be wandering out there like Saunders, just childlike and innocent, mm-hmm. and not having anything to kill them. Right. They're probably perfectly fine. They're just munching on some apples.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was surprised that we had a Terrence Dix prologue where we have three members of an expeditionary force. It it never occurred to me. They'd all survive. Oh, like at the end of the prologue or I guess it turned out to not be a prologue. They were just starting the story. I'm like, what in the world? How are all three of them still here? Mm -hmm. No one's gone mad. And of course, someone did later, but (laughs) (laughs) not because of any events that happened in the prologue. So, yeah, it was a low body count for a Dix prologue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Even Eris, the one who's taken over by the Mara, survives the story. Yeah. So it's really unusual for Doctor Who stories to have nobody die in the course of events, especially when so much does. is apparently at stake. What? Well, the, the Mara, Mara does. No.
2: Or disintegrates or. Neither. Pops.
1: Gets sent back to the dark places of the inside.
2: That's right. You're right. Yeah. Overinflates. Yeah, <laughs>
1: well certainly seems that way on screen. This isn't really a spoiler alert, but the Mara will eventually return. So, yeah, this whole business of Tegan being free of it, that's going to be resolved someday. And it's going to be resolved on audio as well, because the Mara will return in audio. And in that particular audio story, the Doctor is taken over by it briefly. And it's kind of creepy because Davison does villains pretty well.
2: I was slow on the uptake on the Garden of Eden, even though at the beginning, I think more than one character talks about the planet being a paradise. I think Dr. Todd says that, and maybe the doctor, maybe all the doctors say that. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until we got into the second or third appearance of the snakes that I said, oh. But I thought it was interesting. You know, Dalton said, oh, we're going to do another colonialism story. And we did do another colonialism story. But everything was pointing to the expeditionary force introducing evil into eden Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by the fact that we were told that they take hostages yes that they weren't just there surveying and observing the environment but then we had a a third party who introduced corruption which was interesting or ah, introduced corruption and yet the third party is endemic to the planet like the mara had been there for a long time and hadn't gotten around to being able to introduce the corruption before because there hadn't been an appropriate bridge, am I understanding that correctly?
1: Something like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, and they they kind of mentioned that using the wind chimes by yourself is what causes the Mara to be able to get across. So among the Kinda, they knew to not use the wind chimes by themselves or something bad could happen.
1: Yeah. It's also defined as an unshared mind, meaning that if someone non-telepathic right. tries to go into that dreaming, yeah. they're in trouble.
2: And I guess the Expeditionary Force members could have fulfilled that role. but could have. Hadn't happened to fall asleep under the chimes, is that right?
1: Something like that. That's the thing. We never find their bodies. So...
2: I guess I would answer the question about how are the Mara able to introduce corruption now when they've been on the planet all this time? I guess we have these outsiders who come.
1: Yeah, they have a non-telepathic mind. And if you're fulfilling the Garden of Eden myth, they also have a woman through which to do it. In fact, the gender politics in the story are really fascinating because...
2: They go back and forth a lot.
1: Well, it's interesting that... The women in the story are both the wise women, but they're also the ones who could be most easily corrupted. And then it's through their corruption that a man is corrupted. Yeah, almost as if—and this is actually a backwards compliment—that the Mara seems like it prefers women, if only because women on this planet are the wise ones and therefore are easier to corrupt, whereas all the Kinda are pretty much in a state of innocence, i.e. they're not wise, they're innocent in their ignorance, and so there would need to be that kind of bridge. It's kind of fascinating the way that plays out.
2: So does Mara need someone who has use of voice, but is not telepathic? Would that be the interesting thing about Tegan?
1: I think it's more that they need somebody who is willing, that Basically, when she's in the dark places of the inside, when the Mara's avatar is essentially psychologically torturing her and saying, become me and I'll get you out of this, she willingly takes it on. And Eris willingly takes it on, not knowing it's the Mara, because he wants to try to break his brother out of the dome.
2: But Eris is telepathic, so the Mara couldn't have directly... Jim
1: right? I think so. I think that's the way it works. Dalton said it, and this is the way I'd always interpreted it, that unshared mind actually means somebody who's doing the dreaming on their own, which they shouldn't be doing.
2: Okay, because I thought they're indicating the unshared mind was someone who's not a telepath. Yeah, that's how
1: Dix is defining it. It's not defined yeah. explicitly as that in the televised version. So I think there's room for both interpretations.
2: Because Panna and Karuna have voice, but they're also telepaths. Yes. It's not binary. Well,
1: Panna, I'm not sure she is. She is blind in reality, but also she needs Karuna to scan the Kendo whenever she wants to find out what they're thinking.
2: Yeah, that confused me a bit. But they also talk about how the Kendo gather under the chimes to dream together and to share. and I got the feeling that maybe they're not necessarily always in telepathic communication, No, that it's sort of like, you know, when someone speaks, you hear that, but yeah. a person isn't speaking continually, giving a stream of consciousness speech all the time, unless they're on a podcast. I thought <laughs> it was maybe that Pana needed Karuna to be able to proactively reach out and detect what they were thinking when they weren't trying to communicate
1: it's possible maybe
2: like when people were in a state of not trying to reach out to another mind and communicate with it but just in a more passive or introspective state
1: that may actually be the key right there because the reason why eris gravitates towards believing what tegan says is because she's a woman and she has voice so obviously she's a wise woman just like panna is but she's also non-telepathic. It could be that the older one becomes, as a wise woman, the less telepathic ability you have, and you start giving it all to your apprentice, the person who's going to take over your thoughts and your memories, your identity, kind of like the uh, Bene Gesserit in uh, Dune. Mm-hmm. They pass all of their knowledge and experience to the next Mother Superior when they die.
2: Well, they have this similar... and I. Disclosure here. I saw the new movie version of Dune. I've never read any Dune. I haven't seen the 80s Dune. So anything I say about Dune, I'm not pretending to know things about Dune. But don't they also have a prophecy of a male superbrain? Yes. going to become the leader? Yeah. Who's going to be able to think that the other males couldn't do, only this certain kind of wise female could do, and he will be able to do it better and become their leader?
1: Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that is Frank Herbert's um, sexism. Let's just call it what it
2: is.
1: (laughs) But there's also that same thread going through Kinda because they have a prophecy about a man will come who has voice and it will be the beginning of things. You flip that the other way, you think, well, the beginning of things necessarily means an ending of other things, right? The whole thing is about the wheel. Of time, and it's all about civilizations rising, civilizations falling. If a man comes along who has voice, that is going to be the beginning, but it's also going to be the end and it almost is for the kid the civilization because Eris almost takes them to the edge of their ending right there, though it's not quite clear how
2: I think this is a part where I struggle the most in understanding the larger context of clocks and the Mara start the clocks. Yes. And this cycle of the things that are ending, the things that are beginning, what could have happened and what actually happened, I was a little unclear on.
1: That goes back to Buddhist teachings and the idea of being on the wheel of reality and the fact that we don't live one life, but we live several lives. And the entire purpose of trying to reach enlightenment is to attain an escape from that wheel to achieve, I believe, the term is samsara. Though samsara might actually be the term relating to the wheel, come to think of it. It's been a while since I had my um, Indian religions class but it comes down to that essentially this idea that you're trying to escape that wheel and the clock turning over and over again and being cyclical that history itself is a cycle of things beginning and things ending and the mara is essentially that form of evil that causes history to happen history itself is not necessarily a good thing as a matter of fact the reason the kinda are so innocent is because they're in this form of innocent stasis. They don't have to have civilization as we know it in order to simply live. They are taken care of by their planet. They don't need anything else. They seem to have perfectly idyllic lives without being slothful about it, I guess.
2: It was interesting that it did not seem to be a coming of knowledge that corrupted them.
1: No. In fact, <laughs> you could argue that if the doctor and Company had never arrived on Diva Loca, none of this would have happened. They still would have lost members of their expedition. Kindle probably still would have gone insane and blown up the dome, but that would be the ending for the putative colonists, not for the Kinda.
2: So, Kindle's initial breakdown. Yeah. I misunderstood it first. Mm. Later it was explained that it was the eye contact through the mirror that gave him this sort of control over the kind of prisoners. That was entirely from the perspective of the kind of prisoners. I thought at first that they had somehow established some kind of psychic communication with him.
1: On screen it reads like that.
2: But then I was confused that he was the dominant figure that they were literally bowing down to. And if he were drawn to their network, you'd think they would be equal or they would be the dominant one. So the mirror did explain that, but I, I guess I was reading it wrong for a lot of the story until it was explicitly explained later on.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's something that's not clear on screen either. On screen, it looks like Hindle has somehow unlocked some sort of telepathic ability he didn't have before. And it's not that. If anything, it's that... The kinda are probably able to at least read the minds of non telepaths if they choose to, or if they think there's a reason to, like having to be servile to one.
2: Because I thought that he was having a breakdown because he was not a natural telepath and he just could not handle that.
1: No, no, he was having the breakdown long before.
2: Yes, but I thought that that put him over the edge. I didn't realize that it was just, you know, him handling military life and isolation on a planet. He
1: is already dealing with, well, I'm not very good at diagnosing this sort of thing, strangely enough, but it seems like he's had a serious dose of PTSD, probably owing from having had a very rough childhood, it sounds like, and then going into the military and having to deal with rough, high-bound... Law bound people like Saunders.
2: Well, and he's in isolation. He doesn't have a colleague or a friend there. He has a civilian who regards him somewhat contemptuously, and a superior who regards him somewhat contemptuously. Yes,
1: mm-hmm.
0: exactly. A lot of what I read out of Hindle's kind of loss of self, and also like a larger theme within the whole story, is the we versus I. Mm. Mm. And with the kinda, I feel like Pana at one point basically is talking about the kinda as a we, the kinda as a whole, the kinda as a community and as a people. And a lot of that corruption that is coming in is from the Mara making Tegan look inside of herself, be Mm -hmm. self-reflective instead of seeing how she plays into the larger whole she mm. is so focused on what am I? Mm. And Hindle himself is having that issue because he too is wondering, how do I fit into the bigger scheme of things? What is my role in all of this? How can I stand out? How can I please? Instead of being able to work yeah. together. And so that to me is kind of the whole Pandora's box that the Mara is bringing in. And the box of Jana I saw is like a, antithesis of a pandora's box it's basically taking away the knowledge mm-hmm. taking you back to a state of innocence yeah
2: maybe the among we versus the not we i looked at it inside versus outside we think it's also like the part of the group versus not just not part of our group but not part of a group at all
0: yeah and and also to just kind of like like Tony was saying with Buddhism, kind of the idea that we are all the same. We are all part of the same system. Yes. We're all part of the same universe and energy and everything is flowing together. Mm-hmm. And so the Mara is there to take that thought away, to take away that, no, we're not the same. There are things that are different than us. There are things that are not part of what we are. So they need to be eradicated. They need to be done away with. Yeah.
1: And also the Mara kind of plays on someone's sense of ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It takes Tegan's worst aspects and brings them out. It takes Eris's worst aspects and brings them out. And that's something that if you are part of the whole and if you've escaped from that wheel of self, Buddhism is all about annihilation of the self and trying to become one with the larger whole. So this idea of not we and among we is perfect, actually. I was going to take issue with, at one point, Todd says something about the kinder referring to themselves as the among we, and it's like, how would she know that? Because no one's talking to her, right? So how would she even know those terms? Among we isn't really used on screen, except I think once. Mm-hmm. Not we, however, has passed into fan lexicon as the way to refer to non-fans.
2: <laughs> well, so, don't do you think that the Kenda see the expeditionary team as not even a group, as just some individuals? Yeah. Like, they don't even form a, a we among the three of them?
0: No, I, I think that they don't see them as being a threat at all. I don't think that they view them that way. You know, even when Eris... You know, he's saddened by his brother being taken, but all he does is kind of stare at the dome forlornly. He just kind of, he doesn't have any kind of way to know to like try to fight or communicate or anything. He just, he has a feeling about it that there's a connection, you know, there's a part where he says the connection has been lost. Mm -hmm. And that happens after Hindle has shown them the mirror. Yes. And I think that mirrors play a huge part of the story as well, because again, the mirror is a way to reflect yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's the whole scene with Tegan being shown a mirror image of herself that makes her start having this crisis of identity. So I think that's important in kind of breaking the two Kenda that were hostages and breaking them out of you know, they're among we state and making them realize that they are individuals mm-hmm. by giving them that mirror. Yeah.
2: And we also have Eris building, I didn't wasn't even thinking about this in terms of the mirror before we just see all these doubles build sort of the wicker and sapling TSS. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even thinking mm-hmm. about that as being a mirror sort of. Yeah. And then Pendle is talking about blowing the dome to hell at the same time that Eris is also interested in a concept like that. I thought it was interesting that Eris is thinking of destroying the dome and Hindle is thinking of destroying the dome in defense against anyone who might want to destroy the dome. He'll just destroy the dome and everything around it, but that both of them are sort of their, their fancy turns lightly to destroying the dome. But I was trying to figure out if Hindle and Sanders building the cardboard town was also if they're so isolated and so hierarchical in their community or non-community of three people, I thought it was maybe them sort of building a little society like the Kenda, but then th- what they build is so different. Mm-hmm. The town they build is so different from the Kenda society. I thought it was maybe not one of the mirrors.
0: No, but it's a mirror of their society. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, Mm so I thought they were visualizing, you know, a large community of many people. But then when it's described, it's still very technological and hierarchical.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's basically a mirror of what they would want their society to be. Yeah,
1: it's also a funhouse mirror in some ways because Mm -hmm. it's it's a child's version of it, and the TSS that Eris and the others build. Even though it seems like it's meant to be some sort of a fetish of the TSS so that they can control it, that's what I always thought it was when I watched the uh, televised story. It's instead the Mara trying to trick the Kinda into thinking that's what it's going to be, when actually the Mara just wants them to throw themselves against the TSS and get themselves killed because it delights mm. in that sort of thing.
0: Ooh. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it doesn't care whether it blows up the dome or not. It just wants to see lots of people dying and suffering.
2: So at first, he can see like two people playing chess. Yes, and then she sees the Mara who possesses her. Mm-hmm. They're in Elizabethan clothing. Is this right? Yes, it's, it's a Mara. I thought there were several Mara. It was like a species or a category or something. But then later, I thought it was maybe referring to a singular that manifested as many.
1: Well, here's the thing. Those two characters are funhouse mirror versions of Adric and Nyssa. And they represent how Tegan feels left out because both mm-hmm. Adric and Nyssa are very intellectual and kind of snooty about it. And at the very beginning of the story, they're playing drafts. Well, checkers, basically unless drafts is very different checkers in which case I'm sure somebody will let me know in comments <laughs> but when she sees these characters in her head and sees the funhouse version of them they are kind of snooty and haughty in the way that she mm. seems to associate in her own mind with Elizabethan times because this has got her way of dressing obviously and they act as if she doesn't exist, which is possibly the way she feels that Nissa and Adric treat her. Mm. But it's a Funhouse Mirror version of it because, of course, Adric and Nissa don't think of Tegan this way. Obviously. Adric they does. Don't. Adric does. That's true. But Adric thinks that way about everybody. I'm not
2: sure we have recently had a sense of what Nissa thinks of Tegan.
1: No. Because
2: Adric seems to try to bait her by insulting her.
1: Mm-hmm. Nissa and Tegan get along pretty well later. One of our listeners, Jay Barry, pointed out to me that there's some non-canonical stories that happen between Castrovalva and Four to Doomsday. And one of them not only cements some of these relationships, but also explains why they're so tense with each other at the beginning of Four to Doomsday. And it could very well be that that's the sort of tension That Tegan sees herself in with these two others, that she doesn't feel like she's part of it.
2: Well, and we haven't seen her and Nyssa in conflict, but it does make sense so that she would feel intimidated because they talk math together in a way that she cannot follow.
1: Yeah, that's precisely it.
2: Even if, I would say, even if only Waterhouse is being a dick about it. Oh, sorry, even if only Adric is
1: being a dick about (laughs) it. Well, six (laughs) of one.
2: Well I I guess I do feel badly about all the negative stuff we've had about him because it's been it's been 40 years. He should be able to live it down by now. Yeah,
1: I would tend to it.
2: I I hate to think about being known my entire life about my behavior in my late teens yes but then every
1: once in a while even in recent interviews he'll say something that i just cannot forgive him for and it's like oh (laughs) for heaven's sake
2: Well, he's old enough now to know better
1: yeah when when we finally do get to his final story i'll i'll tell you the thing that kind of made me think oh hell to the fuck no that he has said about his character in relation to the others but
2: we can't just tease that and then make us wait for weeks. Sorry,
1: I'm going to have to make you wait for weeks.
2: You don't have to. It's a choice on your part. It is
1: a choice, and I'm choosing to make it. <laughs> Getting back to this whole bit, though, of what Tegan feels in relation to herself with this and Adric, it's all down to insecurity. And the Mara is playing on existing insecurities she has. In fact, you could almost think that that male Mara figure that appears to her might even be the doctor. I never thought of this before, but yeah, there are three of them.
2: Well, so I thought that he was one Mara and she had seen three and it was implication that there were more. I guess I'm asking, is the Mara a singular or is the Mara a a group or a species? It's
1: never quite made clear because Pana refers to them as they at one point. So maybe a little column A, a little column B, but Mm -hmm. I tend to think of the three figures that Tegan sees in addition to herself when she's in the dark places of the inside as representations of people she knows in the real world. So the male Mm -hmm. figure is distrustful version of the doctor and Mm -hmm. those two playing chess are distrustful versions of this and Madrick.
2: Okay, I thought it was going to be like we've seen in so many Star Trek episodes, a member of a very powerful, intelligent species who decides to go mess with Lesser... Let me say that without a list Lesser species. It's hard. Yeah. (laughs) Decide to go mess with the Lesser species and then gets in trouble for it at the end. But that's not at all the story they're
1: telling. No. The Mara are the closest thing to actual... Evil spirits or entities or gods that we ever get in the Doctor or universe. the devil or
2: Lucifer. Yeah,
1: yeah, they're never explained away as some aliens like the demons, for instance, that we got back in the Pertwee era. They're never explained that way. They're not alien intelligences who've decided to be devils. They are devils.
0: Yeah, I I kind of took it too as the Mara may not even necessarily be anything. The Mara is an idea. Mm. The Mara is, you know, that nagging thought in the back of your head that's telling you to do something bad, that's telling you to be someone bad, that's telling you to go against who you identify as. And, you know, again, that mirror, though, you know, we're talking about the Funhouse Mirror, Adric and Nyssa and Doctor that is in Tegan. That's all her mind showing her these versions of these things Mm. that at some level she feels this way about. She feels insignificant to them. She feels belittled by them. She feels that she doesn't live up to their standards of her. Mm. And so the Mara is just that thing in her that, again, like comes out when she wakes up. And whether or not it's a real thing or it's... Again, it's like this idea that she passes on to Eris mm-hmm. somehow. I don't know. <laughs> the
1: only thing that would work against that is that Pana already knows about the Mara. The doctor says he's heard legends of the Mara.
2: But it could be a phenomenon, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, it Rather could than an be. entity with a consciousness.
1: If that's the case, though, that would mean we would have seen the Mara far more often before this. I mean, in the universe, obviously, you need Christopher Bailey to come along and create it. But, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's almost creepier, isn't it? Because if it's some sort of manifestation from Tegan's own subconscious that resides in everybody, ooh, ooh, that's that's creepy.
0: You know, the scene at the end where they use the mirror to basically exorcise the demon. Mm-hmm. It reminded me, there's a scene in the film Constantine, the very beginning, where a young girl is having a demon exorcised and they use a mirror to draw it out. Yes. And show it to itself and trap it and then destroy the mirror. Mm -hmm. So again, we're dealing with like this idea of duality and the dark side of the self.
1: Yep. And that evil cannot face its own reflection.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I don't know enough about Buddhist ideas to know if that's maybe what what they're going for here. Interesting idea.
1: Well, you don't really need to know much about Buddhist ideas to get the story. I mean, this story has, it's got this veneer of mysticism over it for a very good reason. It's trying to deal with the concept of good and evil without bringing in the alien. And the only other way you can do that is to do actual mysticism and myth and, you know, Jungian archetypes. And it works really well if you encounter the story that way, which is why I think this story is pretty brilliant when they're doing it visually, even with shoddy special effects and studio bound stuff. But the fact that the two of you, are getting into the discussion of this so heavily just from having read Dick's novelization of it means that it probably has those legs on its own already because it is a fairly faithful adaptation of what we see on screen, almost too faithful. In fact, Dick's doesn't really do a lot beyond what's on the page because I have suspect he doesn't quite get the script himself either.
2: But he is so good at communicating the trippiness of it. Yes. In a way that is not his usual strength, that I was very impressed. Oh, yeah. I thought it a was re- a big stretch for him.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And I think a lot of it's the dialogue that he didn't originate. But yeah. um, I actually was of two minds because, remember, we saw Keegan in person. I'm trying <laughs> is start her Janet building. Yes. And then she talked about how we were all screamers. And this is, you know, sort of a speech she's given several times in places and I thought, this must be one of the scenes he's thinking of. We were all screamers. And I was thinking, but what a great scream. Yeah. Like if ever there were a time and place, I thought that her sequences with the Mara were such good psychedelia and so trippy and dreamy in a way that I'm not used to in a Dick's novelization that I thought it was really effective description of that sort of basically visual, what we might be seeing on screen and then kind of her state of mind as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it seemed entirely appropriate to scream, I should say.
1: Yeah, she lets out a scream when the Mara passes the snake tattoo from his hand to hers.
2: But it's not because she's, like, afraid of bats or something. No. That would be out of character. I mean, it seemed incredibly chilling.
1: Absolutely. Anyone would scream when their entire being is being subsumed by evil on this scale. But I think you're right, too, about the dialogue. Because some of the dialogue, especially some of the lines panic at, are just lyrical.
0: It is the Mara who
2: now turn the wheel. It is the Mara who danced to the music of our despair. Our suffering is the Mara's delight. Our madness, the Mara's meat and drink. And now he has returned.
1: Oh my God, that's just gorgeous.
2: I was thinking it could be a new tagline for the podcast dance to the music of our despair
1: <laughs> <laughs> i think many people do <laughs> i think they do
2: dj our despair i actually really liked hindle as he was beginning to spin like a top his opening monologue that uh, reminded me of <laughs> a terrible description uh who is that i'm thinking of
1: <laughs> <laughs> who is it you're thinking of
2: What a game to play. Unlike the Kinda,
1: I can't read mine, so I don't know. (laughs) That
2: writer of great horror stories who was also so neurotic and so racist. You know exactly what I'm talking about Lovecraft. Lovecraft, Lovecraft, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yes. yes. (laughs) Yes. This seems like Lovecraft type neurosis here. The Kinda marched them into the main room where Hindle stood glaring suspiciously at the riot of lush jungle vegetation on the main monitor screen. Seeds, spores, particles of generation, he was muttering darkly. They're Mm. everywhere. Bacteria, or worse, viri is and virulent. Am I getting warmer? Change and decay, and all around I see. The doctor, where? Out there, growth everywhere, all higgly-piggledy. But to what purpose? There is the clue. And then he's going to finger, you know, the trees as the culprits. I thought at first it was going to be some more gendered stuff where he was sort of afraid of the sort of feminine reproductive But he specifically mentions here, you know, seeds, spores, things that reproduce asexually, et cetera, just that he is the very concept of life and regeneration and cycles of life and death give him the willies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that makes sense since it comes from a highly advanced civilization that probably doesn't have it. In fact, one thing that I really appreciate Dick's doing in this book is setting it in the context of Doctor Who history. It's a very brief line, but it has the Doctor thinking, oh, they must be from the Earth Empire's civilization, which we've seen before. In fact, it's exactly the same civilization that we saw in Colony and Space, so... <laughs> When she says our home planet is overcrowded, she's not kidding. It probably is, even if it is not Earth specifically, but an Earth colony. Yeah.
2: Well, here we go again. I've already told you, Doctor seeds, spores, and things everywhere, thrusting, taking hold, rooting, thrusting, branching, yeah. blocking out the light. Is, is any of that, Terrence Dix, or is it all on screen?
1: That's all on screen. That is all Bailey.
2: But then in my kind of complaint about the sort of generic nature of the doctor, you know, he says, I see, perhaps we could define the exact nature of the threat presented by the trees. It's funny, but it could be Pertwee. It could be anyone. Could be Hartnell even.
1: It's very definitely Davison, especially when you see these lines performed yeah. by him. Because Davison's doctor has a vulnerable quality, but he also has sympathetic quality that he's often called the most human of the doctors and it's because you can imagine telling your problems to this doctor and he'd actually understand them Mm. unlike say the socially awkward doctors that we've had since the new series started who can't go to dinner with people because they think it's too domestic or the 13th doctor Having one of her companions tell her that his cancer's returned and her only response to it is, I think you need to be talking to somebody else about this. I can't remember the line, but it's something along those lines. Whereas the Davison Doctor, you could imagine.
2: But not from this novelization is what I'm saying. That line could be kind of very, almost mocking from Hartnell or tongue-in-cheek from Baker Not that we have to have emotions and parentheses for every line, but there are several lines like that where I couldn't tell if he was being kind of snappy or sarcastic or empathetic just from the context of the novelization.
1: No, but he is trying to figure out exactly what's going on with Hindle because we do get him thinking about it and thinking, what's the best way to handle this? I need to find out exactly what the nature of this delusion is so that I can do something about it. And yeah, he's not treating Hindle necessarily as an enemy. He sees him as a threat, yes, but he's much more sympathetic to him than I think that the fourth Doctor would have been. Certainly much more than the sixth Doctor will be.
0: I just want to bring up the double helix necklaces that the Kenda have around their necks. I think that, again, is like another kind of detail that kind of shows that they're all about reincarnation, they're about being the same, that they see themselves as like on a deeper level, that that's something that they all wear, and it's part of who they are as a society, as a culture. The doctor recognizes it as chromosomes, but you know who knows what they think of it as. Mm-hmm.
1: I think, and this is just me spitballing, because they never really come back to it in the story, which is unfortunate, Mm-mm. I think that those double helix necklaces symbolize that they see themselves as part of a larger body. Mm. just as the yeah. chromosomes would be part of our bodies and the things necessarily that program us to be the way they are, so they are part of this larger body of the kinda
2: and this is also how the Mara thinks of itself for themselves. Mm-hmm. This first exchange that Tegan has with them or with it, she's pointing out to the male apparition who ultimately sort of possesses her, the snake. She asks why he wears it. And she says that uh, the o- old couple playing chess wore the same design. They would. Why? Because we're the same. The same as what? Each other, said the young man as he laughed again. They seem to have a sort of corporate and individual existence that seemed closer to the kinda than to the expedition or to the TARDIS contingent mm-hmm. which is not what we would expect from the baddies
1: yeah that's a that's a tricky one because that probably goes into what we were saying about the Mara is it an it or is it a they and it seems to have aspects of both But it's still singular in a way that the kinda are not.
2: But they do have individual names and they have, you know, a sibling relationship, life cycle. They do have some individuality. They
1: do, but it's still in a very community based form. Karuna, for instance, says that Eris is one of her seven fathers. Yeah. So there's this idea that.
2: (laughs) Someone said it's kind of extravagant.
1: Yeah, so. <laughs> which is one of the best lines. Yeah, exactly. But it also shows that even though they probably have sexual relations in exactly the same way as we do, meaning that there is one person who donated sperm or what have you, there is that community sense of parentage. So... They're still individuals, absolutely, but it's a very fluid kind of individuality. For that matter, Karuna is going to become the wise woman because Panna's knowledge, experience, and personality are going to move directly into her once Panna dies.
2: Indicating they do still have some kind of social hierarchy. They yes. have, at minimum, at least one wise woman at a time. And I thought the implications were maybe it's sort of a class or a council, but we only see the one.
1: Well... Dix has made kind of a mistake.
2: So something like certain of the women have the voice, but we only see two? That's just
1: it. In the televised version, it's only Panna and Karuna who have it. That woman who explains the prophecy to Karuna in the book is not on screen. Mm. That scene is done with one of the men coming up to her and... Telepathically giving her that information because when the kin to communicate on screen, there's this little sound effect, which is really quite nice, that it indicates that they're communicating. So that was Dick's essentially trying to get that information out through dialogue, but he kind of makes a misstep there because it implies that there's more than one or two wise women at a time. And it's like, no, 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 not all the women among the kin to have speech or voice, rather. Mm-hmm. So I can see where that would get confusing.
2: This is something that seemed confusing to me, but maybe I'm just failing to grasp another instance of mirroring here, mm-hmm. is that both Hendel and Sanders are said to descend to a childish state that's very much like what they personally were as children, not just childishness as a concept, but to their personalities, where Handel was the bossy kid and Sanders was much more submissive and complacent among a friend group but sanders looked into the box right yes so sanders looked into the box which would send him to a state of not just childhood but innocence mm-hmm. but hendel's just having an independent psychological event right like yes, any of us could is. have where circumstances perfect yeah <laughs> so is it just coincidental that Hindle is also reverting to a childlike state, but he was not a pleasant child?
1: Yeah, he's not reverting to a childlike state because of the box, in any means. He's reverted to it because it's almost like a safety mechanism, I think. He's not wanting to go out of the dome because the plants are out there.
2: Well, is it another mirroring situation where they're both in childlike states, but Sanders is in a more sort of dreamy, pleasant Childlike state of oh, let's do a creative project and have fun and all get along, and cooperate. Whereas Hindle is the petulant child, Possibly. who wants his own way, is fearful, is dominating.
1: Is the antisocial one. Yeah, yeah, that like that a, could a mirror be. of
2: two different kinds of childishness, maybe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be the only way to relate those two to each other. Because is
2: just. He's not just submissive, he's cooperative. Like, he helps complete the project. He doesn't just sort of sit quietly.
1: But he also is submissive because, at a few points, he says, as you say, you're in charge. And when he comes to get Adric, he's like, well, we should listen to him, don't you think?
2: I mean, sometimes it's positive cooperation, and sometimes he's being sycophantic and almost self-annihilating in a way that seems less positive. I wasn't sure if he was supposed to be cooperative like the Kenda, or if it was supposed to be something darker than that, an unhealthy sort of obsequiousness.
1: No, no. Sanders has been reverted back to an earlier state, to a much more innocent state, and one in which, you know, all of the worries of being a military commander are stripped away. The box is a healing device. So whatever problems he was having, been stripped away and this is what it's brought him back to because by the end of the book he's fine he's back to being fully adult and mature but he's no longer
2: it's not a personality improvement
1: yeah he's no longer caring about the rule book he's at peace with himself and is even according to todd thinking about just wandering into the bushes and staying there because as he said to her before he was reverted I've come to feel at home here, and that's the first time i felt that way in decades of service, and that's a wrong feeling to have. And it's like, no, 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 it's a very right feeling to have. And it's a very social feeling to have, because he'd be probably sticking around with the Kinda. whereas Kindle is very ego-driven. In fact, Kindle would have been a perfect vehicle for the Mara, so it's a lucky thing he didn't go out to the chimes and start dreaming. That's probably what happened to those other expedition members too. They probably weren't as willing to take on the Mara and probably were destroyed for it, possibly.
0: Yeah, I viewed Hendel and Sanders' childlike states kind of as a way of dealing with their own traumas. You know, we're talking about Carl Jung, kind of that psychoanalysis perspective. A lot of times there's focus on pleasing the inner child, doing the things that the inner child wants to do, getting back into that state of the inner child to heal yourself as an adult.
2: I'm kind of afraid of how the Kenda are portrayed on screen in terms of maybe some kind of mishmash of indigenous people from very geographically and culturally far apart cultures. But I might be visualizing the worst. I'm imagining it was not great.
1: No one's in brown face, if that's what you're asking. They've gotten some. I
2: was actually visualizing more some indigenous South Americans, some no no Tibetan, no, no. some yeah something no. like
1: that. They've gotten very dark-complexed people, yes. But apart from that, it it's not as bad as it could have been. Okay. Mary Morris herself, who played Panna, is about as far from that as you could get, but by that point, a very wizened old woman, so she fits perfectly well in that. But, yeah, it's not ideal. It could have been worse. You can definitely see the story being about a group of noble savages, but they're not savage, which is the key thing. And the nobility isn't so much nobility as it is just pure innocence and a lack of any sort of evil impulse.
2: A lack of any sort of, well, it's not true. I was going to say a lack of any sort of threats. We're told that none of the animals are threatening, none of the plants are threatening. They have a continual harvest. They don't even have to work very hard to cultivate, but they do have right. the Mara. So I guess they do have some sense of a threat. It's just they know how to avoid it.
1: Which is probably what keeps them in line, because they know quite deliberately and specifically what can happen if they go and do unconnected dreaming, for instance, or if they give in to their darker impulses. They probably know better than anybody else.
2: So is there an idea with the starting of the clock that they go through this cycle periodically of the Mara creating some kind of corporeal connection? I think so. And then they somehow overcome it?
1: I think so. I have to say I think so because there's so much in the basic plot to unpack. And it's nice to have a plot that is so unpackable as this. I mean, compare a story like this to Four to Doomsday, which is basically just Drek. And you're like, oh, why can't more Doctor Who stories be this seemingly deep, if not actually deep? Mm -hmm. It's very nicely done.
2: One we had that was seemingly deep and then not actually deep recently was one where we were introduced to Adric, and we had the cycle of evolution and basically a species ascending to a higher form over and over. Not a higher form like spiritual plane, higher form, but developing to a more advanced form of life over and over. Right. And then I, I kind of ended up on the side of or bent to think that we've seen something very flashy and insightful, but it really doesn't make any sense. But The impression was created, and here the impression is created that we're seeing something very impressive. I'm not sure it's true, but at the same time, it's impressive to create that impression. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm speaking cyclically in the spirit of the story we've just read. I'm not sure it's profound, but it does a great job of creating the impression that it's profound. And doesn't it? And I am it? thinking about whether or not it's profound. And <laughs> there is something to do that, as opposed to the previous story, I'm forgetting the name of it. Where it Full was, Circle. Full Circle, where they were trying to do that with a scientific concept instead of a more religious or psychological concept.
1: Yeah. The two stories do kind of feel similar to each other in their own ways, except the one has a higher body count. And this one doesn't.
0: Yeah. I would rather have something like this where they hint at the idea that things are cyclical that things have happened before without being explicit about it and leaving us with a lot of loose threads that don't lead anywhere. Yes. The way yeah. full circle did. You know, we had a lot of questions about what was going on there, not a lot of answers. This one feels very in the mode of the philosophical aspects that we're already being given it wants us to think about things it doesn't want us to have a hard quick easy answer Mm -hmm. so allowing us to come up with our own thoughts feelings interpretations is totally the philosophical part of it
1: (laughs) yeah it's very much a mythical kind of
2: story
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and the trippy dreaminess works to smooth over things
1: Absolutely. I adore the story. I really do. Despite all of its, you know, seeming flaws on screen, I would definitely suggest watching the story on your own now that you've read the book, because it just stands out from everything around it so beautifully.
2: What do we think of the
0: trickster and his doll? I love that. Yeah, I was just going to say he was the other mirror that I forgot to mention earlier.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: mm-hmm. The doll. Yeah. And this idea that you have a male figure who doesn't speak and yet is able to stand in for an innocent trickster, a trickster who doesn't mean to do you harm. Yeah. It, it's meant to make you laugh. Yeah, that's going to be a mirror image of the Mara. Mm-hmm.
2: Was well, he called the trickster on screen? Because he doesn't actually do the things that we're used to that character doing in a story.
1: No, he's not called that on screen because none of the characters are because most of the characters except for Eris aren't even given names. But yeah, I love the performance of that particular actor in that part, especially the doctor doing the coin trick with him. It's... uh, I hesitate to use the word magical (laughs) when describing any stories, but this one has its moments of magic it really does work well to the point that i would love to have had dr todd join them as a companion because Doris hughes has this amazing chemistry with peter davison it would have just been marvelous to have a character like that as companion Mm -hmm. because she's very much a
0: liz shaw type yeah the tartar should be very full but She would have made it. Yes, she. She would have made a really good addition to the team. Yeah. Well. We know who she
1: could replace. Adric could have stayed behind because we kind of want him replaced, or Nissa might not have come out of her nap. (laughs) Oh, that's terrible.
2: Oh yeah, that was the other thing. They said at one point Tegan had been sleeping for two days, and we're told at the beginning that they're there for Nissa to take a forty-eight hour nap, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Which I guess turned out to be a little longer. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's a little hard to gauge that on screen because you never see nightfall on screen.
2: I was surprised I said that Tegan had been sleeping for two days because I didn't realize it had been that long.
1: Yeah, because as far as I can tell, they're held in the cage overnight, the doctor and Todd and Saunders, I think. I think that's the way it works. I'd have to go back. But again, it's one of those situations where it doesn't matter quite that much. Because this is the sort of story that you're more than willing to allow a lot of leeway because it is so much fun when you do that.
2: Mm -hmm. There's a nice line from petulant childlike Kendall that I identified with. He's asking about the box and what is it? And Sanders gave a secret smile. Open it and see. Why should I? Because then you'll understand everything. I don't want to understand everything just like that said Kendall Crossley. I want to find out for myself. I unfortunately identified with childlike kindle, but oh, I'm an idiot. Okay, so i was saying there's no eating of the tree of knowledge. There is a bringing of knowledge yes. in this story, but the Kind already have it. They already have the box, and it's not corrupting. It's the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting, interesting change.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: I think of, yes, like I, I I know very little about Buddha but I think about Buddha thought and the story of the Garden of Eden. It's not. Not being naturally compatible. So I think it's an interesting thing to, to try to combine.
1: Oh, yeah. So anything else we'd like to say about this?
0: The bit towards the end where Tegan and Adric are both lamenting how useless they feel.
1: <laughs> yes. There's a very good reason for that. <laughs> I was
0: going to say, I felt, you know, you had told us that, I forget Nessa's actress name. Sarah Sutton. Sarah Sutton. You told us that she was going to be out for two episodes because of a contract deal screw up. And it very much felt like Tegan also wasn't in like two episodes worth of material.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So. Yeah. And that scene is telling because the episode in which it appears underran. The other episodes overran. That one underran. So during the making of a later story, I can't remember if it was Christopher Bailey or Eric Sayward essentially wrote two new scenes to insert, to make that episode come up to running time. And the scene where Adric and Tegan are bitching at each other outside the dome is that additional scene. (laughs)
0: It's so silly (laughs) to quote Adric. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it really is. Because the entire time they're saying, oh, it's so useless. It's such a waste of time. It's a useless scene because it's meant to waste time. And Dick's of course, plunks it right into the book without any sort of comment, just saying, yep, that that was in the script. I'm going to put it in here too. And it does stick out like a sore thumb because of that, doesn't it?
0: It's like, why is this here?
1: Uh Uh-huh. It's there just to fill out the pages. That's it.
2: Mm. (laughs) How's the quality of the cardboard tone? It's
1: cute. I really like what they do with that because all it is is boxes and really crudely drawn cardboard figures. It's really adorable in its own way until you realize that this is their plan for their capital after they've wiped out the native population. And they're like, oh dear. Okay.
0: (laughs) Just two other small things for me. There's the part where the doctor says, Intentions unknown, hypothesis unfriendly, as K9 would say. <laughs> yes. It's a nice little callback to him there. And then there was a part where the doctor basically tells Hendel not to hurt Adric. And he says it in a tone that Hendel just immediately backs off on. Yes.
1: And that's something that the Fifth Doctor is pretty good at. He seems harmless, sensible, someone that's not going to do you any damage whatsoever, and you can push him over, but you can only push him so far. And then suddenly there is this rod of iron, and you're like, oh.
0: Yeah, that bit, I got the best kind of indication of how this Doctor is. Like you said, he is very easygoing, he is very laid back, but... There is a limit to that.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you do not want to try those limits. Yeah, that's how anybody who's written The Fifth Doctor and the books has tried to depict him. He's possibly the one who is the most deceivingly easygoing of all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, yeah, you don't want to try him or he will fuck you up <laughs> all the while while panicking while doing it generally which is just hilarious.
2: Okay, so the curse is not knowledge of good and evil. Karuna says to the doctor, we're free of the Mara now and of its curse. He asks, what curse? The curse of time, said Karuna. It is the Mara which starts the clocks. Mm -hmm. So they're outside of time? I feel very stupid on this one.
1: I, I don't really know. I think in that case that time is being associated with what we would think of as civilization and the accruement of history. History is generally just a list of wars and deaths. Whereas what would happen if people didn't have wars? What if people didn't have advancements? What if people just stayed in a state where they didn't have to worry about anything?
2: Sort of cycle of birth and death and agricultural seasons and
1: yeah what would things? need to be recorded why would time matter and it probably doesn't matter to the Kinda. it's probably why the idea of those time pieces going off and the alarms going off is alien to them because they don't really need anything like that all they know of time is that people get older and that certain trees have certain fruits at certain times of the year, and other trees have other fruits at other times of the year, and they never have to worry about when. So I I think that's a lot of it.
0: I wonder if that is part of why the time that has elapsed is kind of this amorphous thing. Mm. You know, we we don't ever get a feeling that two days has passed, but the doctor and Adric tell Tegan she's been asleep for two days.
2: Although, in fairness, I feel like that was a lot of Doctor Who story. How much time right. has this is that? It's like three hours or a week and a half. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's intentional, but it's it's interesting to think
2: about. I was say, I think you're, I think you're right that the specific thing about wanting Nyssa to sleep for forty eight hours is that in the episode.
1: Yeah, okay. specifically.
2: And then f- telling. Tegan, she's been asleep for two days
1: after she wakes up. Yeah,
2: I guess there's also the idea that Mrs. and the TARDIS time can work differently and flow differently there, but
1: yeah, but it's been two days. So, whether all this business with the kid that had happened or not, the doctor, Adric, and Tegan would have been on the planet for two days, regardless.
2: But Tegan wasn't asleep the entire time, she's around for you know various adventures at the end. So, I got I thought it was drawing attention to the fact that Nyssa was experiencing a little different passage of time inside the TARDIS than they were on the planet.
1: No, I don't think there's anything in that. I I think it's convenient rounding up because the entire story is meant to have something of a timeless quality, and it does. Apart from the fact that when you're watching it, you can pretty much tell it's made in the BBC studio in 1982.
2: Well, you were talking about leaves being spread on the floor. Yes. I was thinking of, I think it's an episode of Andy Griffith show, where it would be hunting in the autumn. And I just assume now that the whole episode looks like they're hunting in North Carolina, actually in a studio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably not the aesthetic they actually had on
1: screen. No, no. Well,
2: because like I said, the one that I actually have seen since then is Castro Velva, which actually is filmed partially outside. Yes. So I actually did imagine a lot of this episode being filmed a lot like that. I wish they had.
1: I really do. But the thing is, if they had done that, the only scenes they could have done in studio would have been the one set in the dome. Because everything else would have had to be outside. Yeah. And I'm not sure what that would look like because at this point, they're still doing almost all of their location work on film. So you're going to have that disconnect of going outside and everything's on film and you go inside and everything's on videotape. Mm -hmm. It actually works better for this story for everything to be on videotape, especially since a lot of the video effects that they do for, the dark places of the inside, and for Panda's vision that she gives to the doctor and Todd in the cave, that stuff you kind of have to mix using video effects. Mind you, it makes everything look like an 80s music video at times, but (laughs) that's part of the aesthetic, so it works. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Scoot on over there.
0: Let's do it. Let's
1: do. As we always do, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves and you get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.34. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it no rating, but he says, I like Kinda for precisely the reason many people don't. Not everything is explained, so there's plenty of room for the viewer to speculate. And there's room for a sequel too, though don't hold your breath waiting for explanations from that corner. Yeah, I know what he's talking about. There are pluses and minuses when reading the book. The supporting cast is good, particularly Oscar winner, I think Oscar nominee, Richard Todd, who obviously benefited from the sage advice of Matthew Waterhouse. (laughs) The story was shot entirely in the studio, and while the sets are good, it shows the jungle looks much better in prose. As an aside, future Sherlock Holmes' Johnny Lee Miller made his television debut in this story at nine years old. That's right, he's one of the Kenda children. Also in our Goodreads group, Michael gives it 2.5 stars and says, the first time I saw Kenda, I felt there must be more going on in the story than initially met my eye. So I turned to the Target novel to get some clarity and came away reading pretty much the same story as I'd seen on screen with little or no embellishments added which disappointed me back in the day and kind of still does today when it comes to the story. I want an Auton invasion-like target novel for this one, and I get one that's good, but doesn't add much to the viewing experience. And finally, Rocky Sanukio gives it two stars and says, this was a little meh as far as Doctor Who stories go. It was just another thing about the Doctor and his companions being in a new space, getting entangled in their problem, and then getting out which is not uncommon for Doctor Stories. It's okay, but not great. And this of being sick the whole time was just an additional piece of weirdness. So a very broad (laughs) range of opinions on this one. Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this story?
0: I had initially gone 3.5, but I think I'm going to go with four just because our discussion has kind of made me like it even more. I love the philosophical aspects of it. I love, you know, like Dave said, the fact that not everything is explained. The fact that I can sit here and think about it after the fact that mm-hmm. I can kind of create more to this world. You know, headcanon feeds the ego. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one. I am going to go back and watch it and enjoy the VHS effects. But, yeah, I I'd give it a four. Terrence Six does a pretty good job with this. So. Okay.
1: And Allison?
2: I think I'm going to go with three. I feel like I should like it more than I do and in other ways less than I do. So maybe I have kind of grasped the story in the sort of mirrored duality. (laughs) Maybe I should bump it up to 3.25. I like the dreamy, floaty experience of it. I still don't entirely get it but i think that is part of the experience of it so yeah i'm gonna go 3.25 i'm not going higher because even though i liked this story this doctor is still almost blank to me in the novelizations and that's not a problem with the story so much as i think the way the doctor's voice is or isn't being brought out in the story. Not just the lines, but sort of the the demeanor. I'm not getting that from the story. I'm getting it from your descriptions.
1: And as for me, I'd give it a 3.5. Mainly, I'm not giving it any higher than that because it does faithfully reproduce the story on screen, which is a good thing because the story on screen is marvelous. It doesn't add all that much to it, though. And for me, anything that's higher than a 3.5 has to go above and beyond. And Dix hasn't really gone above and beyond here. He's explained a few things that didn't make as much sense on screen, maybe. But he's also added a few things that cause their own problems for the story. So, yeah, it's still good. And the story itself is marvelous. And it's really kind of a shame that the sequel isn't at quite the same level as this, but I am still glad that this book captures whatever magic the original story has, and I'm glad you both liked it, so 3.5. Well, thank you all, Mm -hmm. and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we're joined by Jim Sangster for a discussion of Eric Sayward's novelization of the visitation in the meantime if you like what you've heard here like us on facebook we're at dwtargetbc no we're not we're on twitter at dwtargetbc or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice if all else fails you and then inevitably will email me directly at emperordoll with target book club in the subject line so I don't ignore it thank you very much for listening stay safe and enjoy your travels bye bye
0: Bye. Bye.
1: Doctor Who Podcast Network.